Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Well, you know, over the last uh, the last few days, we've had some questions that have been asked. Sunday morning, the question was asked, who then can be saved? And of course, the Lord had something to prove to his disciples. And we come to this conclusion, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, regardless of his race, regardless of his creed, regardless of the side of the tracks that he was born on. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Even a rascal like, uh, like Zacchaeus, and praise the Lord for that, that uh, Jesus came to save sinners. Sunday night, the question was asked, how long? How long? Boy, and we echo that sentiment, don't we, as we look around in our country. Lord God, how long before you're going to fix this? And then the Lord asks, well, how long? How long before you start? trusting in me how long before you start fearing me how long before you start getting in in the word remember that judgment begins in the house of god and so we need to we we need to be asking ourselves lord uh how long and then god answered that question last night he's gonna fix it but not in the way perhaps that we'd like for him to fix it uh, the Bible tells us in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse number 5, For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. And of course, God went into detail, and Habakkuk had a hard time believing it. But then God asked the question, so what are you going to do? I love Habakkuk's answer at the very end, when he finally uh, comes to the realization, and I think we all need to come to this realization, who are we to question God? Let God ask the questions and then let God give the answers. So Habakkuk says this, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Boy, and it all comes back to that, doesn't it? Who then can be saved? Well, I'm gonna rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's why we're here because he is the God of salvation and because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you're here, you know Christ is your personal Savior. It's not because you found Jesus. It's because Jesus found you. Because he came to seek and to save. And praise God for that. And of course, that is why we have the privilege of being in a local New Testament church. Because God gave himself for it. And, uh, and it is the assembly. And again, I want to commend you for coming back tonight. For being here last night. And and all day Sunday, I know you've received a blessing, and uh, you're going to receive one tonight also. So, Brother Schwanke, we sure have enjoyed having you. Thank you so much. Thank Preach you, the Preacher. Word. Yep, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Preacher. Let me invite you to take your Bible tonight and turn to the Old Testament in First Chronicles chapter number 21. First Chronicles tonight, chapter number 21, and I'd like to begin in verse number 7. That's 1 Chronicles. If you're in 1 Corinthians 21, that's a problem for another night. But 1 Chronicles chapter 21 in your Old Testament tonight, and we'd like to begin in verse 7. What a wonderful night to be in God's house with God's people. And I, I'm grateful and thankful for what the Lord has done and continues to do at Corridor Baptist Church. As a, as a church, you and your pastor, you're just a great encouragement to so many. And I, I'm thankful for the labor and the work that you do for Christ because you love Him. God bless you tonight. First Chronicles chapter number 21. You know, I think if you were to ask most people, what's the greatest sin in David's life? I, I guess they'd look at you saying, you know, that's kind of Sunday school 101, isn't it? 
Everybody knows the greatest sin in David's life was that horrible story with Bathsheba. And, and certainly that was a horrible, horrible moment in David's life. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure how you rank sin. You know, when that story with Bathsheba plays itself out, there's a lot of dead people. We, of course, know that Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, uh, uh, went to battle against what we know today as Amon Jordan and, and why the order was given by Joab and the retreat took place. And, and Uriah was there all by himself to face the wrath of the enemy and he died. But if you read it carefully, he wasn't the only soldier to die that day. Because David was covering up his sin. There were mothers that lost their sons and wives that lost their husbands. No telling how many funerals took place because David had to cover things up. Of course, a year later, the child that was born to Bathsheba dies. And, and uh, by that's fascinating to me. God calls it the child that was born to Bathsheba. Excuse me, but if there ever was an unwanted child, that would have been it. But you know, the word fetus never appears in the Bible. And the Bible just uses one thing. For that matter, the word pregnant is never in the Bible. Every single time, I believe it's 26 times, the Bible says there is a mother with child. That'll let you know how God looks at that argument and, and why the Bible tells us the child that was born to Bathsheba dies. And so there's a number of funerals that take place because David sins with Bathsheba. But when we come to 1 Chronicles 21, David is about, about to commit a sin that is so grievous that when it plays itself out and it won't take very long, there will be 70,000 dead men, 70,000 because of David's sin. And it all comes down like this in 1 Chronicles 21 in verse 7. If you're able physically, could I invite you to stand together with me and and we look to God's word tonight with a, a verse that I'm afraid you would not hear in most modern houses of religion. The Bible says, and God was displeased with this thing. Would your God ever be displeased? The God of modern religion never gets displeased. And then, even more so, it says, therefore he smote Israel. Would your God do that? Father in heaven, we pray for your help and your wisdom tonight as we go to the mighty word of God. And I ask that this mighty chapter in the Bible would do its great work in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, may we be reminded that our God is to be feared. Our God is a God of holiness, a God that will not play with sin. And Lord, I pray that tonight the mighty word of God would do great works in our hearts and lives. For someone who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what a great night to be saved. So we are in desperate need for your help, and we come in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. So how do we get here? How do we come to the place where God is so upset with David, and I believe by extension so upset with the entire nation of Judah, that the wrath of God is going to fall upon the people and 70,000 men are going to die. You know, it all begins in the first part of the chapter. And, and, and you know, this account is found two times in the Bible. Here in First Chronicles 21 and then back in Samuel. And, and I know sometimes that's a little confusing. You know, we're reading the Bible. We say, now wait a minute, preacher. There's this story in Matthew. And then there's this story in Mark. And then there's the same story in Luke. But you know, they're not exactly the same. So which one is it? Is it Matthew? Is it Mark? Or is it Luke? And of course, the answer to that is yes. 
The answer is yes, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't pick one or the other, we add them up together. I mean, how can you put the Word of God into one account? How Can you imagine the problem that the Lord had? And I don't know if the Lord has problems, but if He did, it would certainly be a problem putting the eternal words of God on a level where somebody feeble like me could understand them. I mean, how impossible is that? That alone lets you know this book is the mighty words of God because no human could ever do what God has done in his words. And that's why you might get a story from one angle and then another angle. And, and God's not expecting us to pick and choose like the scholars do. Uh, God is expecting us to put the accounts together and when you do that, there's a most remarkable thing that happens. Now, I got to tell you, there are places in the Bible where I just shake my head and say, beyond my pay grade. And one of them is this story right here. Because the Bible tells us God was so upset with the sins of David and the sins of the nation of Judah that God's words now, he uses Satan to provoke David to number the people. Love to explain that to you. Love to explain that to you. But, you know, I'm just a little short of time tonight, so I'll let Brother House handle that one next Sunday. He can deal with that guy. So how you explain the Lord uses Satan to get David to provoke the Lord to anger, I, I, I got to tell you, that one is just beyond my pay grade. But that doesn't mean I don't question. I question it or I have no questions, no doubts. It's the Word of God. So it is so. So Satan provokes David, and David does what we call in America, take a census. Now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the law of Israel, there were legitimate reasons to take a census. I, the king was certainly allowed to number the men of his nation so he would know what kind of military to have. Then the Bible tells us in Exodus that the king could also number the people, and some things never change, so he would know how many taxes he needed to raise. You know, just some things never go out of vogue. But, but whatever the reason, when we come to 1 Chronicles 21, this time it seems like it all is about David's pride. In other words, David says, we're going to go and get a number of our military. And, and this isn't to know how many sons to take. And this isn't to know how much money to raise. It just seems that the whole thing is about David's pride. It seems like David wanted to go to the next king's fellowship meeting and brag on how many he was running in the military. And it just seems like David wanted to boast. And, and, and that's the funny thing about numbers, isn't it? You know, there are humans who think, if I can just get a number, I'm going to be happy. And, and if that number is this, that, or the other thing, then I'll sleep tonight. Really? Is that how it's going to work? So the Bible tells us that David says, I'm going to number the people. I want to know how great I am. And in verse number three, Joab answered, Joab is his captain now, the Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? I got to tell you, folks, when Joab is telling you to get right with God, things have really gotten off the rails. I mean, we are not looking at Mr. Righteousness here. We're looking at a guy with plenty of his own issues. And David, and, and you know, you might read this chapter and I might read the story and say, well, you know, I don't understand it all, but this doesn't seem so bad. I mean, it seems like David did a lot worse things than what we get in this chapter. I mean, is pride really that bad? Yeah, it really is. 
And however you see it or I see it, God evidently saw it in a different way. And David has gotten so far away from God that a, a man like Joab is saying, what are you doing? Joab is saying, David, doesn't, don't you know that God will give you everything you want? I, hasn't God been good to you? Hasn't God blessed you again and again? Here is Captain Joab saying, David, what in the world are you doing? But you know, David's not listening to God and he's not listening to his Bible and and he's not even listening to good advice. So Joab goes out and numbers the men in the military. And in verse number five, he gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all they of Israel were a thousand, thousand, a hundred thousand men that drew sword. By 1.1 million. You know, their military was just about the size of the U.S. military. I mean, that's pretty close to the U.S. Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, the Space Force. I mean, that number's pretty close to our number. And of course, the difference is David had has to guard a piece of land the size of New Jersey, and our military has to guard the entire free world. Are you happy now, David? Are you going to sleep better tonight? I mean, David, now you go to the next King's Fellowship meeting and you can brag how big your military, uh, uh, how the Lord has blessed our military, excuse me. I, I mean, David, is, is, are you a happy man now? You got a number. Are you going to sleep better tonight? I, I mean, is this going to make things work a lot better? David, you got a number and you can brag on how big your military is. I don't know how well David slept that night, but there was coming a day where he wouldn't sleep very well. And the Bible tells us in verse number 7 that God was displeased with this thing. So the Word of God tells us He decides to smite Israel. In verse number 9, it plays out like this. The Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David. You know, that's significant. There are plenty of times where, of course, God speaks directly to David in the Bible. Somewhere between 73 to 85 of the Psalms in the Word of God, uh, uh, they were written by the hand of David. In other words, God's words were spoken to David and David wrote them down. I mean, almost half the Psalms, if not more. So there are plenty of times where as a shepherd, David speaks with God and God speaks with him. There are plenty of times as a king that God and David have conversations together. David knows the voice of God and on many occasions, God has spoken to him. But when David is not right with God, God is not speaking to David. So now he has to send Gad, and this is serious. It's not Nathan the prophet. It is Gad the seer. I mean, it's kind of like we preached this week from Habakkuk. He was not only an ear witness of the wrath of God, he was an eyewitness. God gave him a vision. And a seer is someone who not only hears the message of God, but he also sees a vision from God. And now God sends David's seer, Gad, and says, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thou one of them that I may do it unto thee. So the preacher comes to David and says, David, God's judgment is going to fall upon you and upon the land of Judah. So now you have a choice to make. I, David, you can choose three years of famine. You can choose three months of running from the enemy, or you can choose three days of what the Bible calls the sword of the Lord. I will promise you he's not going to be reading a magazine now. All right, David, it's going to happen to Israel. You have a choice to make. Either you're going to spend the next three years running for your lives in famine. You're going to spend the next three months fighting fearsome enemies. Or you're going to spend three days facing the wrath of God. And you know, there's a very powerfully important thing in verse number 13. David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. 
You know, when you read that phrase in the Bible, the word straight means the pressure is enormous. It's like my insides are crushing. I mean, David can barely take it. I'm in a great straight. I can't take the pressure. But look at what he decides. Now, by all accounts, in verse number 13, David is not right with God. David's pride is about ready to destroy the nation of Israel. I, David, is living in great sin against God. God's wrath is ready to come down for David's wickedness. And yet, despite the fact that by any stretch of the imagination, David is nowhere near being right with God, look at verse 13. He said, let me now fall into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Do you know what David does? Here he is. He's not right with God. He's a long way from being right with God. And while it may not seem so bad to you or me, it certainly has offended the God of heaven. And yet, even in a moment like this, where by any, any measure, David is a long ways from being close to God, David makes the Bible choice. He made the right choice. You know, that's why you pour the heart of the Bible into the hearts of boys and girls. That's why you have the Sunday school classes. That's why you go to camp. That's why you keep teaching them the Bible. You keep giving them the Word of God. Because, my friend, one day, it may be a young man, a young lady gets away from the Lord. One day, they may go places that are shameful and disgraceful. And one day, there may be plenty between their soul and their Savior. But when the Bible is sitting in the heart, it's amazing how God can pull those scriptures and use them. In other words, all of those nights where David's looking up into the starry sky saying, Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name. All of those days where David watches the sheep graze and he says, The Lord is my shepherd. All of the Bible that David had learned as a young man. All of the Bible that David had learned in the caves running from Saul. All of the Bible that David had meditated on sitting on the throne in Israel. All of that Bible comes back right now. And David makes the right choice. He is not right with God, but David says, One thing I know, great are the mercies of God. Great are the mercies of God. So let me fall into the hand of God, not into the hand of men. David got the right choice. You would say, and I would say, there are no good choices. And you know, sometimes in life there are no good choices. But even though there are no good choices, David made the Bible choice. He throws himself at the mercies of God. And so here's what that sounds like. In the end of verse number 12, it is three days of the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coast of Israel. You know, if the chapter doesn't start out unsettling enough when the Bible says God uses Satan to provoke David, well, now here is the angel of the Lord administering the judgment of God upon the land of Israel. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is nothing less than an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the angel of the Lord is not so. But in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, I believe he appears 15 or 16 times. And, and every single time, it's an appearance in the Old Testament of the Son of God. It really is quite a Bible study. You know, the angel of the Lord appears to the people you'd expect, to the Daniels and the Davids and the Abrahams. But the angel of the Lord appears to people you'd never guess. People like Hagar and the mother of Samson. It's a tremendous study. And every time the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament. It's a good time to kick off your shoes. You've come to some pretty holy ground in the Word of God. 
And this time the angel of the Lord has come to execute the wrath of God. It is not the first time, nor will be it the last time, that the Son of God executes God's wrath. The angel of the Lord has come to the coast of Israel. Now, certainly there's a coastline by the Dead Sea, but almost certainly this is speaking of the coastline of the Mediterranean. And it's almost like a tidal wave of the wrath of God. It seems almost to come off the sea. In that day and even now, there are fishing villages along the coast. As you make your way inland, those fishing villages turn into small towns. From there they turn into the suburbs of Jerusalem. In the Bible they're called Fen cities. And then of course on top of the hill the prize of them all is the city of Jerusalem. And like a tidal wave of judgment here comes the wrath of God off the sea. And here comes the wrath of God from the coastline. And as the judgment of God begins to spread across the land I, I wonder if you could almost hear the cries of horror and the screams of agony that are rising right along with the wrath of God as it visits the land, as man after man is being slain in the land of Israel, in those little fishing villages, in those small towns, in those suburbs, you can almost hear the cries rising out of the Bible as little boys and girls have lost their daddy, as wives have lost their husbands, and as mothers are weeping over their sons, and the death toll is mounting, and the death toll is rising, and why as bad as it was yesterday, it just seems like the next day is going to be worse. And now we come to verse number 15. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so as bad as it has already been with 70,000 dead bodies, with people crying in agony and pain, and this pestilence ready to wipe out the whole nation, it is nothing compared to what is about to happen because the angel of the Lord is hovering in the air over the highest spot in the city of Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord is brandishing over his head the bloody sword of the Lord. And why with one order and one command from heaven, if that bloody sword comes down upon the city of Jerusalem. This is not a fishing village. This is not one of the suburb cities. This is the great city of Jerusalem with hundreds of thousands of people. And if the bloody sword of God's wrath comes down upon that great city, there is no telling how many people are going to die. And the angel of the Lord has come to Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord is hovering in the air over the highest point in that city. And the angel of the Lord is ready to strike right at the heart of Israel. And verse number 15, the Lord beheld and he repented him of the evil. You know, every time I read in the Bible, the Lord repented, I always have to stop and say, thank the Lord, I'm not a Calvinist. What are you going to do? What are you, you going to handle that one? The Lord beheld and repented him of the evil. And he said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough. But look at the words, stay now thine hand. Can you see the moment in time? I mean, you're talking about a heart-stopping moment in the Bible. The angel Lord is hovering in the air, holding that bloody sword over his head. And if that sword comes down upon the city of Jerusalem, the death toll is going to go higher than is imaginable. And as he holds that bloody sword, all of a sudden, God in heaven says to the angel, the Lord, enough, hold it right there. But notice the words carefully, stay now thine hand. He didn't say put your sword into the sheath. He didn't say stop the judgment. He said, hold, stop right here for a brief moment. Stay now thine hand. And for a brief instant, there was a respite to the wrath of God. 
What a heart-stopping moment in the Bible with the angel of the Lord hovering in the air. And if that sword comes down upon Jerusalem, the death toll is incalculable. It is one of those moments in the Bible where everything seems to stop. What is going to happen? Because should the righteous wrath of God fall upon the city of Jerusalem, the men that would die, the sorrow and the heartache is unimaginable. And as the angel of the Lord hovers in the air, we're about ready to get one of those moments in the Bible, one of those rare moments where God is going to peel back the skies and human eyes are going to get a glimpse into that world that is rarely seen. You know what happens later in the Bible in a place called Dothan? Dothan was one of those suburbs, one of those fen cities. And one day the Assyrians will come and they will surround and besiege that city. They will choke it off, no supplies in, no supplies out. And months later, the city of Dothan is ready to crumble. Starvation on every side, they're ready to die. The whole city is finished. Everyone in the city is living in a state of panic. Everyone that is, except for the prophet of God, Elisha. Can you hear his servant as he comes and says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And the preacher said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And suddenly the eyes of that servant were opened. One of those rare, unusual moments where God allows human eyes to see that spiritual battle. And when that servant lifted up his eyes and looked, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. You realize with me tonight that if for a moment, if just for a moment, God were to peel back things right here and right now in this auditorium, and if just for a few seconds, if you and I could see the spiritual war that is taking place even in this auditorium tonight, the very spiritual war that'll take place when Pastor House preaches Sunday morning. If you and I, for all we take for granted and all that we accept or even never think about, if God would but part the skies like he did for that servant or as he is about to do in First Chronicles 21, if just for a moment you and I saw that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers against spiritual wickedness in high places if you and I just got a glimpse if you and I just got a taste of what that spiritual battle is like it would scare us to death and now the skies are ready to be opened and in verse number 16, that rare moment comes to pass. David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Can you see the eyeballs popping out of the head of David as all of a sudden he looks up and he sees, he sees how desperate this is. Uh, this is not a little pandemic. This is not a little disease. This is the wrath of God falling like no other time. And over the city of Jerusalem, the angel of the Lord is holding the bloody sword of God's wrath and he is hovering in the air over that spot in Jerusalem with that sword drawn in his hand. I got to tell you, David's heart must have stopped. And to be a little more precise in verse number 15, the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor. Really? Do you see, if the wrath of God is going to be stopped, something is going to have to happen at a threshing floor. The threshing floor, at least this one, was a rock on this top of this mountain. 
the threshing floor is where they would take their grains and they would throw them on the rock and they would call for the beast of burden. And the beasts would come and they would trample so that the, the chaff would blow away in the wind from the top of the mountain and the grain would fall into collecting basins. I mean, it was a threshing floor. It was the dirtiest spot imaginable. It was the place where the beasts did their work and the beasts did their business. I mean, you are talking about a filthy, smelly, dirty place. But if the wrath of God is going to be stopped, it's going to happen this is not how humans write the story. No, no, to us humans, if we're going to deal with the wrath of God, to us humans, the answer always is religion. So we're going to have to build a grand cathedral. Right, we're going to have to have beautiful stained glass windows. Upon the wall, we need to wear artwork that costs millions of dollars. Right, we're going to have to have pipe organs playing grand music. A choir has to be singing. Why, the answer that humans always come up with, if the wrath of God is going to stop, there has to be a religious response. Well, if the wrath of God is going to be stopped on this day, it's all going to happen at the dirtiest place imaginable. A threshing floor. And if that weren't bad enough, it's not just the threshing floor in verse 15. It is the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. I mean, the wrath of God is going to be stopped not in a house of religion, not in a grand temple, not in a great cathedral, not with music being played and robes being worn and, and religious relics all around us. No, the wrath of God is going to be stopped, if it is stopped, at a threshing floor of, of all things, a man who is a Gentile. You know, when we started in Genesis 1 and made our way to 1 Chronicles 21 tonight, First, we'd be pretty good speed readers, but had we done that, when we saw that word Jebusite, the gray matter start to kick over, and we would say, you know, I, I've heard that name before. I've read about Jebusites. Yes, it was centuries earlier when Joshua was ready to bring the children of God into the land, the promise. He said, there are battles to fight and God will give you the victory. But he said, our job is to drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. And sure enough, at the end of the book of Joshua, the Bible rehearses the victories of God and the Jebusites were delivered to the people of God. It seems that three centuries earlier, I, when the people of God crossed the Jordan River and they came into the land, the promise that God gave them, the Jebusites. But you know, somehow, some ways, three centuries later, there still were some Jebusites. It was 30 years before the story we read about in 1 Chronicles 21 that David attacked the city of Jebus. The city of Jebus became the city of Jerusalem. And it would seem that, and the guess is because this is the highest spot in town, and Ornan, who's also called Aruna, because he is living at the highest spot in town, the guess, and it's only a guess, is that Ornan may have been the king of Jebus. And normally when one king conquered another king, it wasn't pretty for that conquered king. I mean, in some cases in the Old Testament, some nations would put him on display like a zoo. Other times, most normally, they'd put him on trial if they even did that, and they would execute them. And yet, instead of persecution, instead of torture, instead of execution, it would seem that if Ornan were the king of Jebus, that David not only allowed him to live, David allowed him to live on the top of that mountain. It's quite an amazing thing. 
you know, Ornan could stand and give his testimony three centuries ago. I mean, I'm a stranger from the commonwealth of promise, but he could say three centuries ago when the Israelites came in and my ancestors were here, when you thought everything was gone, God found a way to spare our family. And three decades ago, when it looked for certain like I was a dead man, God's man had mercy upon me. But whether you're Jewish now, a Gentile now, if you're in Jerusalem, you're in trouble. The wrath of God is ready to fall. The angel of the Lord is holding that bloody sword over his head. All it takes now is just one word from heaven and that sword comes down. And whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether your name is David or your name is Ornan, if that wrath of God falls upon the city, there's nowhere to go and there's nowhere to hide. Uh, it's not the way it's supposed to be. There's supposed to be a religious response here. There's supposed to be the works of men's hands here. There's supposed to be some great gift that we can give to appease the wrath of God. There's supposed to be some wonderful work of righteousness that we can do. But no, if the wrath of God is going to be stopped, it's going to happen at the threshing floor of one Well, what is a David to do? And, and the word of God is awfully specific now. In verse number 16, David and the elders of Israel who were clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. And verse number 20, Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons with him hid themselves. And then at the end of 16, there's the angel of the Lord. He stands between the earth and the heaven. So it is that moment in time. It's that critical moment. David and the elders have come in their sackcloth, the garments of a funeral. David doesn't have his kingly crown on now. David's not wearing a beautiful purple robe now. David is wearing the sackcloth of sorrow. David knows he is about to see the funeral of his city. And David is on his face with his forehead to the dirt. The elders of Israel are pleading for the mercies of God. As for Ornan and his sons, well, it appears that he hides himself, so to speak, in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. And he's ready to say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And as for the angel of the Lord, he stands between heaven and earth holding the sword over his head. And everyone is waiting for orders from God. So what is a David to do in verse 18? The angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, we should note that God is still not talking to David, that David should go up and, what do you know, set up an altar unto the Lord. An altar, of course. That is always the answer to human sins. It goes all the way back to the first accounts of Genesis when two young men, Cain and Abel, knew that they weren't right with God. They knew that all had sinned and that included them. They knew that the wrath of God needed to be stopped. So what is a man to do? Uh, well, for Cain, he goes and gets him a fruit basket of the works of righteousness. I mean, a beautiful fruit basket of his good works. Do you know how much I labored over this? you know how much I paid for this? Do you know how hard I've worked for this? And when Cain brings an offering of his own good works, Cain becomes the father of modern religion. It's what religion always does. As for Abel, there are no good works now. The God of the Bible build an altar. 
out of stone, out of wood, but build an altar. Upon that altar, the innocent animal, the lamb's blood is going to be shed. Build the altar, shed the blood, and then it's all up to heaven. Will God accept the sacrifice of the lamb? Well, as for Abel, he comes with the fruit basket of his good works. And the Bible tells us that God did not accept it. And not only does God refuse to accept it, even more, God even refuses to look at it. As for Abel, he comes by grace through faith and the blood of the Lamb. And the approval of God is upon the sacrifice of the Lamb. One man finds mercy, the other finds wrath. And that sets the course through the course of time. Because when humans have sinned against God, it's always the same answer. You have to build an altar. Upon that altar, the innocent lamb's blood must be shed. When the blood of the lamb is shed, that sacrifice makes its way towards God. But you know, it is all useless, it is all empty, and it is all vain unless God accepts the sacrifice. Will God accept the punishment of that lamb? There's a Bible word for this. When God accepts the punishment of the innocent lamb, that's called the propitiation. So now God says, David, build an altar. It's time to get the stones. It's time to get the wood. It's time to make the sacrifice. And yet verse number 21 is so startling tonight because as David came to Ornon, Ornon looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornon, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me, notice now, for the full price that the plague may be stayed from the people. David comes to Ornon and says, I want to buy not just the threshing for I want to buy the whole place the whole mountain and David says you're going to sell it to me and you're going to sell it to me for full price you know what Ornan does Ornan says you know way forget it David I can see what you can see and I know that I'm about ready to die and you're about ready to die we're not going to haggle over a price now David forget it he says I'm going to give you the wood so you can build the altar I'm going to give you these animals you take what you want so you can sacrifice I'm going to give you the place I'm going to give you the wood I'm going to give you the animals And you know, if there's one thing you kind of sense reading this chapter, things are happening awfully fast. And you know, if David had been anywhere near like most of us, David would have said, okay, man, we'll worry about the details later. We got to build an altar. And yet with everything that is going on, the Bible tells us that Ornan says, David, I'm just going to give you everything. In verse number 24, King David, with all this happening, said to Ornan, nay. You know, when you're reading your Bible and you see the word nay, That's not just no. The word nay is no and by all means no. He said nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer a burnt offering without cost. And so there is one more element, isn't there? If the wrath of God is going to stop, number one, you have to build the altar. Number two, the innocent blood of the lamb has to be shed. But number three, that sacrifice has to be very expensive. For David, when you run the numbers of verse number 25, give or take a bit here, in our numbers it would be $327,000. 
David says, no, we're not going to get in a hurry now. No, I'm not looking for a coupon now. No, I am not looking for a good deal now. David says, I'm going to buy this place. I am going to buy this mountain, and I'm going to buy it for the full price. And so to speak, David whips out his checkbook and writes out a check for $327,000. There will be no cheap sacrifices today. And that's the problem. Years ago, when Hitler was rising to power in Germany and becoming a terror to that part of the world, to the entire world, you know, this should never be said, but it's the truth. It should never be said, but you can't avoid it. Hitler rose to power with the full aid the blessing and the help of the ministers of Germany. It is the reason tonight you will never, ever, ever hear me positively quote Martin Luther. Martin Luther had a passionate hatred for Jewish people. The Jewish, the the German leadership under Hitler, the propaganda ministers regularly and constantly quoted Martin Luther. You can read Luther's sermons when he was a young man and right before he died. And they are full of some of the most passionate hatred for Jewish people that you have ever heard in your life. The man despised Jewish people. And the ministers who followed him had that same hatred for Jewish people. And I will promise you tonight, there is a reason why modern ministers who follow the teaching of Calvin and Luther do everything they can to replace Israel and the Bible with something else. That is not an accident. The ministers stood behind Hitler as he begins his reign of terror against the Jewish people. And I say the ministers, but thankfully that didn't include all of them. One preacher in Germany was thrown in jail by Hitler two weeks before the Allies freed that part of Germany. Hitler callously and arrogantly commanded that preacher to be executed. He died for his love for the Lord. But you know, before he died, he lifted up his eyes from his prison cell and he wrote it in his book as he looked across the religious story of Germany. And you know what he said? And this is in the 1940s now, but he said, the greatest problem in Germany, this is what he called it, cheap grace. Yeah, that's it. That's the big problem in America tonight. Cheap grace. That's exactly it. Everybody talks grace, grace, grace. That's the only word modern ministers know. However, the problem is it's cheap. Right, their grace is just a cheap grace. Come on to church on Sunday morning. Hey, you know, come on, dance. Come on for 20 minutes or so. We'll rock and roll. We'll have a number of songs. And, you know, when you're not listening, I'll sneak in a verse or two. And, and then at the end of the service, let's just all wave our hands to Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you. And now you're all going to heaven. Cheap grace. Churches are excuse me, houses of religion across America are full of people who sit there week after week after week and they mock the grace of God by their own wicked lives. It's cheap. There's nothing real. There's nothing powerful. There's nothing about the great price that was uh, paid for our sins. It is a cheap grace that says you can have your religion and you can have your sin. It is a cheap grace that says you can have heaven and there's no price to pay for the Son of God. It was the problem in Hitler's Germany and it's the problem in our America. Cheap grace. There will be no 
cheap grace in First Chronicles 21. David says, Ornan, I am not looking for a deal. I am not looking for a gift. I am not cutting coupons. I don't need a deal. He said, I'm buying this place for the full price. And with everything that is happening so quickly, and literally with the angel of the Lord holding that drawn sword, and one word is the end of Jerusalem, David stops everything to make sure he has paid the bill. $327,000. There will be no cheap grace on this hill. So we have the altar. On that altar, there is going to be an innocent lamb shedding his blood. On that altar, well, the whole story is the story of great price. And now the sacrifice is given. And it's time to look to heaven. Because it's all up to God. In verse number 26, David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And you can almost hold your breath right along with the people that day. And David and the elders are weeping and crying. How Ornan and his family are hiding and trembling. The angel of the Lord is waiting for orders from heaven. And as the smoke of that altar begins to ascend towards heaven, in verse number 26, this is what Jehovah does. He answered him. God answered David from heaven by fire upon the altar of the burnt offering. The fire of God comes all the way from heaven and lands on that altar. Four times. Four times in the Old Testament. The fire of God came all the way from heaven and hit an altar. The first time is when Aaron inaugurated the priesthood. The second time is right here. The third time is when Solomon builds that magnificent house of God, the temple. And the fourth time will be on Mount Carmel when Elijah prays and the fire of God falls upon the altar. Four different stories, but there's one thing that ties them all together. When the fire of God fell from heaven and hit that altar, God was saying, I accept the sacrifice. God was accepting and the Bible says in verse 27, And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. And in verse 27 and a half it says, And David's heart started beating again. What a moment in time. All eyes look towards heaven. What will God do? And when the fire of God, the propitiation, accepted that sacrifice, God tells the angel, put your sword away. And on that day, at the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite, the wrath of God collided with the mercy of God. And when the dust settled, mercy won. Wrath met mercy, and mercy won. Mercy was great and grace was free. And when the wrath of God was poised to fall upon the city of Jerusalem and the bloody sword of the Lord was a heartbeat away from destruction beyond the pale, wrath and mercy collided. And mercy won. What a moment. 
But you know, before you put the story to bed for the night, you need to turn a few chapters to the right to 2 Chronicles chapter number 3. 2 Chronicles chapter number 3, where the Bible says, as Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Oh, you say, Solomon's temple. No, there is no such thing in the Bible as Solomon's temple. No such thing. Don't look at me like that. I'm not the one who wrote the Bible. There is no such thing as it is never called Solomon's temple. It is never referred to as Solomon's temple. And do you know the reason? Because it wasn't Solomon's temple. Solomon had a palace down the road apiece, but this is not Solomon's temple. Every single time in the Bible, it is called the house of God, except for one occasion, it is referred to the house that Solomon built. It's not Solomon's temple, it's the house of God. You know, I, I was thinking for a while, you know, I wonder why Hollywood, and I wonder why modern ministers, and I wonder why scholars, I wonder why they, they call it Solomon's temple. You think it could be that they really hate that phrase, the house of God? You think that could be it? You think there could be a connection because, you know, the house of God was the tabernacle, then the house of God was the temple, and, and now the house of God is the New Testament assembly. You think it just might be that these scholars and these Hollywood experts, you think they just might hate the house of God? So what humans laughingly refer to as Solomon's temple, God never calls it that. Second Chronicles 3.1 said it is the house of the Lord. It is the house of Jehovah, but keep going. It is at Jerusalem, and of all things, it is in Mount Moriah. And that's important because that's where the Lord appeared unto David, his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Warnon the Jehovah. Well, who would have thought? This highest spot in the city of Jerusalem where there is a stone still there, where there was a stone, and on that stone there was a threshing floor where the animals would grind the grain, where they built that altar, where God stopped the wrath of God. Well, this whole mountain, this whole place has a name. It is called Mount Moriah. Well, what do you know? We've read about Mount Moriah, haven't we, in the Bible? Sure. In Genesis chapter 22, there's a 130-year-old man named Abraham. And Abraham's got a 30-year-old boy, give or take a few years now, named Isaac. And, and the Lord says, Abraham. And of course, he did what he always said, here am I. That's a great way to respond. It's a great way to respond when you're walking into the New Testament assembly. Here I am. I'm ready to go. Or wherever, whatever, whenever, however, here I am. That's a great thing. He, and the Lord said, yeah, not a big deal today. I just want you to take your son, your only son, the son you love and go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him unto me. Really. And so they begin to make the way the boy, the daddy, the servants until finally Abraham tells the servants you stay here, the lad and I and you know, we can't do this in our English language. There's no way to do it. But in the language of the Bible, the lad and I, we, plural, are going up and the verb is we, plural, are coming back. There was never a doubt. You can see him walking up Mount Moriah now, and, and Isaac says, you know, Dad, you got the wood, you got the fire. But you know, Pop, ever since you hit like a buck twenty-five, you're starting to forget a few things. And you know, Dad, I, I gotta tell you, you forgot the sacrifice. Jehovah Jireh, son, the Lord will provide. And then they get up to Mount Moriah. Where then, and three hundred years later, and now, there is that stone. 
you see it. And Isaac realizes, I am the sacrifice. What do you know? God said, build an altar. Nothing changes. God says the innocent is going to go upon that altar. God says the sacrifice is going to be very expensive. You know, for David, $327,000, that's a lot to anybody. But that's nothing compared to Abraham. Thy son, thine only son that you love. And you know, I, I just have a sneaky suspicion that a 30-year-old fellow could run away from a 130-year-old guy anytime he wanted. But Isaac never moves a muscle. He offers himself upon that sacrifice and Abraham takes that knife and he rears back and he's going to put that knife right into the heart of his son. And he said, oh, you know, you know, and I know. Well, yeah, you and I have read the story, but could I remind you, Abraham hadn't read Genesis 22 yet. And he said, well, he wouldn't have killed. He was going to put that knife right there because in Hebrews, the greatest commentary on the Old Testament is called Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, God said he expected to kill him and expected that God would raise him from the dead, it says. He takes that knife and he's ready to plunge it in the heart of his boy. All of a sudden, God said, hold it right there. A male lamb, a ram with his horns caught in the thicket. They take that animal and they sacrifice. And sure enough, Jehovah Jireh, put the, build the altar, put the hand, sacrifice on the altar. It's no cheap grace now. It's got to be very expensive and Jehovah Jireh, God provided. And it's one more time on Mount Moriah where the wrath of God collided with the mercy of God. And when the dust settled, one more time, mercy won the day. Wrath met mercy and mercy won. Here's Abraham standing on Mount Moriah. Here is David on the top of Mount Moriah. And they both have the occasion where wrath and mercy meet and mercy wins. And you know, so many times when we read the story of Abraham and Isaac, it is so passionate, it is so moving, it is so emotional. that You know, you can barely go on. And, and I'm afraid sometimes we don't go far enough in the story because God tells Abraham, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provided, but from this mountain, shall be seen. On Mount Moriah, Abraham and David have the wrath and the mercy of God collide. But from Mount Moriah, God says you can see the greatest battle of all. And sure enough, one day, this wouldn't be the story of a son or the story of a pestilence. One day, this would be the battle of the ages for the God of heaven said it's not just the wrath of God abiding on Isaac and it's not just the wrath of God abiding upon Israel the wrath of God abides upon every man every woman every boy and every girl I mean without a savior it is not that one day we face the wrath of God it is not that one day we deal with the wrath of God but without a savior the wrath of God is abiding on us right now it'll be the battle of the ages so what does God tell them to do? Of course, build an altar. This one is not of stone or this one is not of wood. This altar is going to be built in the form of a cross. The innocent will go to that cross. Well, we could talk about a lamb. We could talk about a ram. But that's nothing compared to the pure, perfect son of God, the lamb without blemish. 
You talk about costly. Abraham's got to give his son, his only son. And, and for David, it's $327,000. That is nothing compared to God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And now the sacrifice is given. Every eye turns towards heaven. Because at, Mount Ca at that place called Calvary, the wrath of God collided with the mercy of God. Three days later, you get your answer. Mercy won the day. Wrath met mercy and mercy won. David could tell you the story at Mount Moriah. Abraham could tell you the story from Mount Moriah. But from Mount Moriah, we can see that place where the great price was paid for the ages, when the wrath of God collided with the mercies of God. And for all of eternity, we'll, we'll never escape the fact that mercy Years ago, a, a broken-hearted daddy went to an old-time preacher. He had a Bible school, and, and he said, I want you to take my boy in your school. And the preacher said, I'm sorry, Mr. Newell. I wish I could take William in this school, but this is a Bible school, not a reform school. I, I wish we could help you. We're unable to do that. And yet that father just began to beg that preacher, and he felt like it was the last opportunity. And, and the preacher said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll let William come to this school, but under one condition. He needs to come into my office regularly, and I'm going to teach him the Bible. And William Newell said, my boy will be there. And his boy, William, enrolled in that school. And he went in the office of that preacher and day after week after month, the Word of God began to chip away at his heart, and God broke his pride. And one day, that young man called out to the Savior, and he was gloriously changed. Years later, that boy, William, was now a teacher in that very same school. A man came and preached a chapel message, and when he was done preaching, William Newell went into his office, and he said, Lord, I want you to help me write my life story. He took a pen and a pad, and he wrote it like this. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. And oh, the love that drew salvation's plan, and oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary, for mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. It was there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. One day Abraham and Isaac stand on Mount Moriah and they watch the wrath of God collide with the mercy of God. And when they're walking down that mountain, mercy won the day. One day David is on his face as he watches the wrath of God collide with the mercy of God right there at Mount Moriah. And with everything hanging in the balance, mercy wins the day. But it is from Mount Moriah you can see the greatest battle of the ages where the wrath of God met head on to the mercies of God. And when it was all said and done, mercy won the day. Wrath met mercy, and mercy won. Do you know him as your Savior tonight? I know many here would say, Jesus, the Christ of Calvary, has washed my sins away. But you know, I fear that oftentimes we are so busy, sometimes even in the work of the Savior, we get so busy about life and so busy about everything that we forget Calvary and our hearts get cold and distant. A missionary from India one day was asked in a missions conference, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you in India? 
And of course, you're supposed to give the tiger story, the cobra story, the elephant story, some kind of such story. And, and he said, no. He said, the worst thing that happened, it had happened more than once. He said, my heart get cold to the things of God. He said, that's when I'd take my Bible, and he said, in the city where I worked, I, I'd walk out of town, and I'd climb up a hill overlooking the city, and he said, I'd just sit under a tree, and as long as it took, I would read Matthew and then Mark and Luke and John, and I'd just read about the cross. And he said, I stayed there until my heart was warmed. I'd stay there until the joy for my Savior would come back. I'd stay there until Calvary was real again. If you don't want to be weary and faint as a child of God, you know the answer? Consider him. Consider the contradiction of the cross. And if you and I get cold and distant towards Calvary, then it's time to stop everything and return to first love. Wrath meant mercy. Mercy meant. Father in heaven, I'm grateful and thankful tonight for the mighty word of God and what a day. What a day when David, what a day when Abraham stood on Mount Moriah and, and they literally saw the wrath of God collide with your great mercies. But Lord, more than anything else, we go to Calvary tonight and we see the great price that was paid by the pure, perfect Lamb of God. And then we watch His wrath and mercy collide. And what a battle that was, and yet when it was all said and done, mercy won the argument. And Father, I ask and pray if someone in this building has never bowed their knee to Jesus and called upon Him to save them, that tonight their heart would be captured by the mercies of Christ. And then for your people tonight, may we never, never, never lose first love for Calvary and the great price paid for our sins. I wonder before I finish praying if somebody tonight would say, you know, preacher, I just need you to pray for me. Uh, I don't know according to the Bible that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And uh, I want to know how the Bible says a sinner like me can be saved. I would love to pray for you tonight and Pastor House would desire to help you right from the Bible because the answer is never works of righteousness and the answer is never, never religion. The answer is the Savior, Jesus Christ. Is he your Savior tonight? Is there somebody who'd say, Preacher, I just need you to pray for me. I want to know how the Bible says I can have eternal life. I want to know how the Bible says my sins can be washed away. Is there somebody like that? If you just quietly lift your hand, I'd love to pray for you tonight. And, and Pastor House would love to help you right from the Bible to know Jesus is your Savior. Is there someone like that? Would you lift your hand tonight? Pray for me. Pray for me. My Father, we give you this invitation and ask you to do a work. Now, Lord, for your children, may the Word of God melt our cold, stony, hard hearts. Bring us back to Calvary. In Jesus' name. Would you stand together with me tonight? And, and as we begin to sing that invitation song, the preacher's here, the altar's here, and if you're not saved, we invite you to come. But tonight, if you'd say, I'm the one who's grown cold and distant, and I'm the one who needs to come.